if we can see the beauty in our friends and our family and other people, if we're telling them, wow, you're a really great friend, you're a really great mom, like, why can't we tell ourselves that person? Oh, I gotta go. I've been working, told them, please don't hit my phone. I'm in my zone, bruh, just leave me alone. Was on the road, but I swear I'm coming home. Now the drinks on me, I think we need a toast. See, I did it for me. Now my old friends calling, told them nothing's for free. Told me time is money, dog, swear I paid on my fees. I was starving for this game, now my fan, they can't eat. Hey everyone, welcome, welcome, welcome to the Cup of Nurses show with your hosts, Peter and Matt, two nurses on a mission to change this world one conversation at a time. If you find value on this show and want to join us on this mission, it would mean absolutely everything to us if you please share and review the show. Cupofnurses.com for the latest info, updates, and all the merch releases. For our lifestyle podcast, you can check out wearefrontlinewarriors.com. In this episode, we would like to introduce you to Stephanie Polizzi. Stephanie is a licensed mental health counselor working at Peaceful Living Mental Health Counseling in Westchester County, New York. Stephanie specializes in working with teens and adults struggling with eating disorders, anxiety, trauma, behavioral challenges, and life transitions. Stephanie is a trained eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapist at a trauma-informed practice. She uses a combination of EMDR, cognitive behavioral therapies, and other modalities when working with clients. Stephanie, thank you so much for being here. Can you give us a little background about yourself and how you got into therapy? Yeah. um, So I'm raised in Westchester County, New York, where I'm currently practicing at Peaceful Living Mental Health Counseling. Um, I grew up with my parents and two older brothers in a huge Italian family, big, loud Italian family. Um, And I honestly went to therapy when I was in high school. Um, I had lost my grandmother when I was 15 and that was just a really difficult thing for me to process. So I had reached out to, um, my school social worker who had kind of introduced me to, um, the therapist that I started working with. And my parents were really supportive of that decision. And I just sort of realized like, wait a minute, this thing actually kind of works. (laughs) Um, And that kind of started the journey and like curiosity for me. Um, It didn't totally just leap into like, oh, I want to be a therapist. Um, But I went to undergrad at Widener University out in Pennsylvania, kind of toyed around a little bit and then landed on psychology of just like, hey, this, this makes sense. Um, so that was kind of it. And then I got my master's at Baruch in the city. Um, but I just sort of realized how much therapy was helping me and how much I wanted to help other people. So it kind of just all clicked. So what did therapy allow you to do? Was it, was just you some kind of a, like a open space to talk about your feelings or what did therapy provide for you that you were looking for when you were younger? Yeah, I didn't really understand what was going on in my head. Um, like I lost my grandma and I didn't put start to put all the pieces together until I went to therapy, until I started to really be like, wait a minute, something doesn't, something's not matching up. Like I started to be really angry and I like wasn't an angry person, but I didn't know how to express any of that anger. Um, so therapy at the time was a space for me 
to explore that, but also be, and that, and it wasn't necessarily that I didn't want to talk to my parents or didn't want to talk to my, you know, my family members. It was really just like, I need my own person that I can just talk to that isn't going to kind of insert some of their own stuff or isn't going to um, look at me kind of funny if they heard what was going on in my head. Um, and my therapist really provided that for me and just provided me the space and also understanding of what grief looked like. Um, cause we don't really get taught that it's just kind of like somebody dies. Now you're going to grieve and you're, it's like, what does that even look like? What do you mean? So she really helped me understand that, like where, like what I was doing was grieving and it just didn't look like anybody else in my family. Um, so yeah, she helped, she helped a lot. <laughs> I'm very grateful. That's what's fascinating is we don't have an instructions manual for our mind. So as a therapist, mm -hmm. they're telling you, Hey, this is the phase that you're on your feelings and emotions are related to this. So you can start processing it and seeing what are the next steps that you can take to feel better. Yeah, exactly. And exactly. in your, in your current field, what are some challenging behaviors that your patients are dealing with that you're guiding them through? Yeah. So I right now mostly work with teens and adults that are struggling with eating disorders, um, trauma. I'm also a trauma informed therapist. I'm a, I'm an EMDR, uh, trained therapist. Um, and I do work with some little guys. Um, a lot of my like younger kids, I call them my little nuggets. Um, a lot of them are coming, um, just for kind of general understanding of what feelings look like and a lot of parents I think now with these kids like this generation are really starting to put those pieces together they're like oh we don't have a manual and people are starting to realize that when they were kids they weren't taught how to handle their feelings or express their feelings you know appropriately and accurately so that's a lot of what like my younger kids are coming from and then for my teens and my adults, it is mostly mostly eating disorders. And we saw a big spike of that because of COVID. Um, so just trying to have them understand the messiness of what an eating disorder is and provide a lot of uh, education around what an eating disorder is and what it can look like for certain people. Um, so right now it's talking a lot of like restriction and binging and purging and you know, kind of just trying to help people understand what's going on for them and kind of help with that roadmap a little bit. I would love to understand eating disorders and why people struggle with them. But first, I want to understand what is EMDR? What is the therapy that you actually provide to your patients? Yeah, so EMDR is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy. Um, a bit of a mouthful. So I'm very happy that they shortened it to EMDR because I couldn't imagine saying that all the time. Um, so it's a type of trauma therapy that was originally developed in the 70s or 80s. I'm going to be annoyed at myself for not remembering that in a little bit, but um, was originally kind of developed for vets with PTSD um, to you know process what happened overseas and in war. And it thankfully has shifted to a lot of different things. And it's not just for PTSD anymore, although it 100% still treats PTSD, but it's also used for depression and anxiety. Um, I've used it with my eating disorder clients before. Um, I've actually just this past summer did an entire training on EMDR and eating disorders. Um, so it's not the only thing that I do, but it's one of the things that I do. Um, that just helps people understand and process 
kind of what happened to them and how it turned into maybe these symptoms, these behaviors, these thoughts, and it helps process. Um, and the beautiful thing about EMDR is it channels both cognitive and physical because trauma is not only cognitive. Trauma is what happens to our bodies as well. So it helps process any kind of unresolved feelings, anything that has gotten stuck because our bodies remember all of that. Our bodies remember how they reacted in certain traumatic events. So EMDR isn't just talking your way out of something, and but it's also feeling your way through the trauma, if that makes sense. That's, yeah. that's powerful because the body keeps a score, right? So we have to, yep. um, you know, a lot of people think the mind is just up here, but the mind is the whole entire body itself. And we have to integrate mm -hmm. both parts because they're both independent organisms and of intelligence. Yeah. And you hit the nail on the head, like trying to like we say the body keeps the score a hundred times a week here um and having people understand what that means and that trauma is stored in your body and the reason that maybe other traditional therapies haven't worked for people is because they weren't getting to those physical pieces um and EMDR can be used like as somebody's kind of first method of treatment I think it's getting um it's getting a lot more popular, um, EMDR. I'm hearing a lot more about it. We're having people call in and ask a lot more questions about EMDR. Uh, I think a lot of the times some people heard about it after they started some other type of treatment. Um, I'm saying um a lot, I'm sorry, but they it can definitely be used as its own um, modality and also in conjunction with other therapies, which is a lot of what I do um, is kind of start especially like my teenagers start them with maybe cbt and other coping tools and then kind of gradually shift them into emdr therapy and how does EM, emdr therapy look like is it a session where they sit down and it's with eye movement so are they looking mm -hmm. at specific directions are they looking at specific ways and you're talking talking to them talking to them through it or are you asking questions how does that actually sit down a session look like this episode is sponsored by mudwater our alternative to coffee. It has all the benefits of coffee without the anxiety, jitters, and crashes. My favorite ingredient in mud water is lion's mane because it keeps me alert and focused. My favorite ingredient in mud water is chaga and reishi because it boosts my immune system. It's like chai and cacao had a baby. Mud water works with our body, not against it. Not like most caffeinated products. Mud water is 100% USDA organic non-GMO, gluten-free, vegan, and kosher certified. Our favorite way to drink mud water is with a nice froth on top and some honey. Use code cup of nurses for discount at checkout. That is code cup of nurses. Not to mention with every purchase, mud water donates to the Berkeley Center for the Science of Psychedelics. Yeah. So it's very different than your traditional talk therapy. Uh, there's actually not a lot of talking. So the, the way that we mimic the eye movements and why eye movements or bilateral stimulation is so important because research show that it's actually what we do during REM sleep and how we process the day is by the bilateral stimulation. So what happens when something traumatic happens is that process can't happen and things get stuck. So if we're virtual for EMDR, we usually like we'll shift out of the way and have people follow our fingers from one side of the screen to the other. 
Um, there's also all these fancy equipments. We have a light bar that in either in office or on the computer, we have people follow the light. Um, there's also tactile. So we, again, if we're virtual, we'll have people do, we'll have crossed their hands over their chest, which is called, called a butterfly hug and have them tap. They can even tap their feet. And then there's also another chance of doing things um, auditory. So it kind of just goes like one ear, one ear, one ear, one ear. So that all of that bilateral stimulation is what's helping process the memory. And we're, we're having them do that for a certain amount of sets, asking them what are they noticing, whether in their body or mentally, and then having them just keep doing those sets until kind of everything's either processed from the body, the cognitions around the trauma are changing for them. So it's very different than talking all the way through it because a lot of the times we just don't talk at all, <laughs> which can sometimes be difficult and like jarring for people because they're used to talking. And then we kind of have to be like, no, 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 hold on. A little bit less talking, a little bit more feeling because we want them to still stay in their bodies and be able to notice what is being released. So with this with this eye movement, it helps them, uh, helps them, I don't want to say relive, but it helps them focus on that memory or is that memory come back to them um, at, like in a, in a better way? How does that eye movement actually like open up these like neural pathways to help them like remember this or process through this? And, and so before, we, yeah. before you answer, I'm okay. going to take a spin at it too because I'm thinking about it. Very fascinating, mm -hmm. by the way. I feel like when they're doing all these tapping and they are almost putting our like primitive mind into a hypnosis where you're mm -hmm. focusing on this the movement so your mind is busy with the movement and you're able to feel your body because so many times we're using our mind to experience reality but we're not using our body to experience reality that's just but my then, how how does that differ from somebody just say is the same meditating because if you're not asking any kind of it's just like how does that differ how does that that differ because in my mind um it I see this as just a person sitting alone and processing through through these memories, just thinking about it is given the uh, greater help than like the, the eye movement. How does the actual eye movement actually help facilitate this kind of, um, mm -hmm. you say therapy or, or, or um, yeah. healing? So we, yeah. So we have them start with what's called a target memory. So in terms of an entire treatment plan, we kind of start with either some, we start with something in the present and have them do what's called a float back, which something in the present, we have them tap into an image, we have them tap to tap into any other felt sense. And what we try to guide them through in a float back is allowing their mind to float to another point in time where they might have felt like that. So if it's anxiety or panic and like they have all of these symptoms in their body, right? They have like their stomach starts to flutter. They feel tense. They start sweating. More often than not, there's something in their past that has elicited that, that same experience. And that's where those neural pathways come in of like, there's things that link up for a reason. And so we'll pick one, we'll pick somewhere to start. And we, again, kind of ask them, have a memory, have some feelings. And we ask them to have a thought like a positive thought. And then we also ask them to have a, a, a negative thought, sorry. And then also ask them to have a positive thought. And there's a rating scale of how disturbing this memory is. And we want that 
to reduce. So the highest is 10 and the lowest is zero. And while they're focusing on that image and they start to tap or they start to look at the eye movements, it all depends on preference for the client. It's not so much, it, we have to task them to do two things at once of like paying attention to the eye movement, but not too much <laughs> and pay attention to what's going on cognitively and physically so that they kind of all go together at the same time. Um, and that, that bilateral stimulation is what's helping process all those physical symptoms. And it's honestly magic. <laughs> I'm stunned every time I do it with somebody because the way that the brain works and the way that one image is able to have somebody jump to something else and make those connections of, oh, this is why I felt like this. This is why I had that reaction. And almost be able to understand for themselves just, oh, now I can kind of think, I can think this way instead. This way makes so much more sense. So it, they just kind of sit in, and I know it sounds kind of weird that they're like sitting by themselves and kind of just tapping a little bit. And then that's what's working, but it's just how all of those neural pathways are connected and what ends up being released for people, whether it's physical, I've had people start kind of crying in sessions. I've had people um, start kind of fidgeting a little bit and getting a little bit more comfortable. Um, I even had somebody who's like actually like sinuses started to open up in session and he was like wiping his nose by the end um, just because things are being released in the way that they were sort of supposed to, but what, what ended up being disrupted because of the trauma. Fascinating. So you're just helping the the person's body release the suppressed memory, mm -hmm. the storage of energy that um, reduces the blockage. So the the goal with this therapy is for them to realize their trigger, correct, and to make peace with it, or to see other aspects of reality of how to go about that memory or their thought or the emotion that kept creating that same experience, right? Yeah, and, and each client kind of comes for different things too. Um, so helping identify triggers is huge. Um, and a lot of the kind of thought component that goes into EMDR is these kind of negative cognitions of it's my fault or I should have done something or even like, why did this happen to me? I'm a bad person, kind of all of these things. And then realizing, oh wait, none of this was my fault or this, like, yes, this happened to me, but I didn't cause this. I'm, I'm not a bad person. Cause that's what our brain ends up telling us in terms of like trying to survive. We're trying to make sense of the traumatic thing that happened. And we more, more often than not automatically start to blame ourselves. So I must've done something to have X, Y, Z happen. And with EMDR processing, we're able to process sort of those unresolved feelings, those physical feelings that are trapped and get to a better place and be able to say, wait a minute, I, how could I have caused this thing? That doesn't make sense. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Um, I'm really curious on how you got involved in working with people that had eating disorders, uh, anxieties and other challenging behaviors. What, what made you um, go down that route versus other, um, other, um, you could say psych issues, if you want to mm -hmm. call them psych issues or just 
just issues in general? Yeah. So my, I was in a sorority in college and our philanthropy was anorexia was um, the association for anorexia nervosa and associated disorders. So we won week, I believe it was in the spring semester. Um, it was called ANAD week and we were raising money and had fundraisers. And we actually had somebody from my student health center, one of the therapists talk about eating disorders in the college population. And as I'm sitting there listening to this presentation, I quite honestly had a light bulb moment of like, wow, all of this stuff really makes sense. And I want to know more about it. And I tried to get an internship um, at an eating disorder facility when I was in undergrad, but timing of things just didn't work out, but it just never left. So even when I went to grad school, it was something that I was asking professors about and trying to find internships for. Um, it's, I don't have much other than it was just something that made sense to me. Um, so after grad school, um, I got a job at a residential eating disorder facility. And that's just honestly where I started to learn and from the ground up basically of what does an eating disorder look like, where, like, why are eating disorders triggered and, you know, how to help. And I was there for a few years before taking the leap and kind of moving to private practice. So that was huge. I went from residential to outpatient. So that was a little bit jarring, but it was something that not a lot of people understand. So I was almost happy to be one of the people that did understand and then able to take it and, you know, make a career out of it and be able to help people and help their families also understand what was going on. And Stephanie, can you help us understand why people have this behavior of eating disorders? Is there a theme, a root cause issue that causes this trigger for people to binge on food? Yeah, so there's not one specific cause to an eating disorder. Um, sometimes there's a genetic component, like just like that genetic predisposition. Sometimes it can be trauma. So if we you know, kind of look at COVID, it spiked so much because our whole world got turned upside down and people were trying to figure out ways to cope with all of the unknowns. Um, there could have also been some type of childhood trauma um, the biggest thing, the, I guess like the most cohesive way that I can explain an eating disorder is it's a coping tool. So there's that control piece of I'm not able to control other things, so I'm going to control my food. I know that I can control if I eat this, when I eat this, what I cut out, and what I do after. And there's body image that goes into it and like societally that's a huge factor, um, how people view body image and the comments that get made about bodies, but also the comments that get made about food and how we're taught about food. Um, so all of that kind of just squeezes all together and more often than not trying to identify what the purpose of an eating disorder is, is my main goal in like the first few sessions with a client because it does serve a purpose. It's not just, it's not just this thing that somebody chose one day that nobody wakes up and is like, going to have an eating disorder today. It's really something that develops over time. And it, it's what helps people cope when they're really struggling with something. 
that they're not able to really get in touch with all the way. Yeah. And is that, um, is that the same when you're considering adults and teenagers are uh, like, for example, when it comes to anxiety, eating disorders, or even, or even challenging behaviors, are they suffering through the same things? For example, are these people have anxiety because of like a self-esteem issue and that's true for teens and true for adults? Or is the reason why, why they have this eating disorder different between ad- teens and, and adults? Like is a teen mm-hmm. more focused on a, a physical, uh, physical weight issue versus mm-hmm. a adult is maybe uh, like a trigger issue or are they kind of uh, the, the same when you take into consideration teenagers and adults? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of them, a lot of the things end up overlapping for sure. Um, I think timing of when an eating disorder started is huge too. Um, I also look at like, I use the terms disordered eating and eating disorder because sometimes like not many people, believe it or not, have a good relationship with food. There's always kind of something lingering that, well, I can't eat this because of this reason. And it's, and could it, it could be a weight, like a weight gain type of thing. But a lot of the times, like I'm kind of talking about the main themes of, of a trauma, of body image, um, of self-esteem, sort of that idea of like not feeling good enough. Um, and a lot of people, unfortunately, do think that being smaller will help them overcome all of those, which is a thing that then ends up reinforcing an eating disorder. Um, society reinforces eating disorders all the time without really knowing it either, just the way that we do talk about people's bodies. Um, but teen or adult, they somehow end up kind of overlapping with what the themes are. Um, and it's sometimes just how long somebody's had an eating disorder. A lot of my adults, like I'm ending up seeing after having been struggling for a really long time. So the dropping down to the teenage years for me was like, okay, maybe we can, maybe there's a way I can stop this before it gets somewhere else. How does the healing process look for somebody that has an eating disorder? So I know that we mentioned CPT and EMDR, are we going directly to the root cause of why they're coping by eating or are we acknowledging first and creating self-awareness in, in patients and saying, Hey, this is the wrong way to cope. Let's mm-hmm. cope differently. And then let's get to the root cause. What's the, I don't want to say systematic approach, but how do we approach mm-hmm. patients like this for them to begin their healing journey? Oh, how that process looks? Yeah. 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 That's a great question. Um, I, so me personally, I just want to make sure that I'm getting to know my client just for who they are. And I think one of the biggest things to toot my own horn for a second, I think one of the biggest things that I do bring to my sessions is just the very relaxed and calm, like be whoever you are in these four walls, because I'm going to be here anyway. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to leave you. I'm more often than not just as goofy to like make sure that my clients feel comfortable. Um, I'm a dork. I'm a huge dork. And especially when I'm in session, like I just try to use a little bit of humor and like just being a person to have my clients feel a little bit more comfortable. Um, and, And it all just depends on what sort of timeline in somebody's eating disorder struggle they're coming to me. So sometimes they're coming in the very beginning and they're like, I don't know anything. I don't know anything about an eating disorder and helping them connect those dots of 
oh, restriction makes me feel in control. Okay, what am I trying to be in control of and sort of go that way. So sometimes it's really behavior based on trying to reduce the symptoms because a lot of the time too, like those symptoms and symptom interfering behavior is going to push how long they're in recovery for. Um, and then sometimes people come to me and they're like, yeah, I know why I do this and I want it and I'm done. Like I'm done doing it. So that could mean maybe going the trauma route um, and sort of having them also develop some type of routine I like to loop in dietitians. I like to loop in um, P like PCPs and also psychiatrists. Um, eating disorders are a very big like team approach, um, but it all just depends on what somebody might be struggling with and also what they feel comfortable working on. Because I'm not going to fix, like nobody's going to fix anything. I don't love to use the word fix, but this isn't going to go away unless the person is ready to let go. So I kind of try to ask a little bit of what do you feel comfortable working on? Cause me, I'm supposed to push you, but I can't push too much because then they're just going to shut down. So I really try to use a very much like person to person approach. And then also really integrated integrative of where that person might be at. Cause sometimes they can acknowledge like, Oh, an eating disorder isn't really helping me reach my like goal of life. Like, I don't want to have an eating disorder my whole life, but it kind of feels comfortable right now. So we have to look at it too, that you can't just tell somebody that their eating disorder is wrong because we're pulling away their main source of coping. If we pull it away and don't like kind of swiftly start to replace it with things we're stripping them of how they've survived okay stephanie i'm curious like what the process looks like in somebody that is successfully going through a therapy so is there like certain benchmark that you aim for for example clients kind comes in the first thing we have to do is have them realize that they have a problem mm -hmm. and step two would it be for them if they have an eating disorder for example i mean step two would it be for having to develop a new relationship with food and step three less of the um less of like the the, the vomiting or less of the, the binge eating how does how does that like a successful six month six months look like or a year or doesn't matter what the time frame is what's like a mm -hmm. good what are, what are good benchmarks that you're looking for and what is a successful therapy session actually yeah um i really look for consistency with food so whether so that's eating however many times a day and that's where i would typically loop in a nutrition, a nutritionist, because everybody's like calorie intake and timing and things like that is all different. Um, but really consistency with food, um, all of the things that they cut out, sort of reintegrating those into their diet. Um, obviously, unless it's like for allergy purposes, or, you know, other like more extreme medical things, but more often than not, people are cutting out carbs because carbs make you fat or sugar makes you fat or something, something, something makes you gain weight. So it's reintegrating some of those foods and also having a really balanced diet. Like we want people to have a good relationship with food, of course, and not be fearful of foods or not, you know, want to eat foods for the fear of gaining weight. But we also want to make sure that they're getting their nutrients because a lot of the times 
Um, especially, you know, clearly if you're come, if I'm working with somebody who is at a low body weight, like they're not getting all of their nutrients. Um, if I'm working with somebody who maybe binges, like you also have to find that, get that routine back of consistently eating because those binge cycles is just going from like starving to like to full or over full and having your body learn that oh, I'm, I'm getting food and I'm getting food consistently and having somebody trust, having them trust themselves, but also their body trusts them that they're going, that it's going to be fed. So straight up, like strictly food wise, it's really finding that consistency of, of eating often and being and eating until you're full and identifying what full means for somebody and that having a more balanced diet. Um, I'm really big on like routines with coping tools also and like looping in that self-care, trying to figure out how do we replace, how do we replace the, the restriction? How do we replace the purging, the binging with something that makes more sense? Whether that's meditation, whether that's like calling a friend, whether it's reading a book, like trying to figure out what coping tool is able to kind of ride that urge of wanting to do the thing that we're trying to eliminate. Okay. And if, um, for example, this is very similar to the last question I asked, but for example, I'm someone that, that has anxiety or challenging behaviors and I know I've been struggling with, with it, but I don't want to see a therapist yet. I want to try to do it myself. So if I sort of for anxiety or these uh, bad behaviors, like for example, I don't know, maybe you're just a really violent person or something. What are some steps or what's a process I could do for myself alone that maybe help me overcome these anxieties or challenging behaviors? Mm -hmm. So understanding where a lot of them come from. So our anxieties don't just pop out of nowhere. Um, like that fear is based in something. So maybe asking the questions of, okay, what purpose does this serve? What's this anxiety trying to tell me? Um, anxiety can also be sort of like a survival response too, like that fight or flight response, that fight, flight, freeze, like there's something that's going on that's making you have that reaction. So being curious as, okay, why, why am I having this reaction? What could I possibly be worried about? Or like what, and may potentially being able to link to something else. And that could be a little bit harder to do on your own. Um, but thought reframing is something that I teach clients in the very beginning. And just I, my typical question is, what would you say to somebody else? So that's something that like you can do on your own. Like, oh, I'm telling myself, like I was anxious before we logged on for this. And I was like, oh my God, you're going to mess it up. Oh my God, you're going to sound stupid. Taking the time for me to sit there and be like, okay, would I tell somebody else that they would sound stupid? Like, no. And trying to reframe your thought in that perspective. Um, finding the things that you love to do and that make you feel good. That's coping tools. Coping tools are very, or can be very simple of, I like to go for a run. I like to talk to my friend. I like to read a book. And a lot of the time we, especially with like the go, go, go of school or work or whatever, we lose that time for ourselves. So really making sure that we're getting that time, we're carving out that time for ourselves, and doing the things that we love that allow our bodies to relax, that allow our minds to relax. So it's 
piecing together where my thoughts are coming from, what's going to make me feel better, and also knowing when to reach out for help. Because sometimes we can try to do that process on our own. And a lot of people do. I mean, that's why we have books. That's why we have podcasts. And it's why we have a lot of other resources. Um, but at the end of the day, if we can't do it all by ourselves, it's also being able to kind of have that conversation with yourself of, okay, I've been trying to do this for X amount of months. Like something's not really working. You know, maybe now it's time for me to seek out help. Yeah, and I don't. One more thing, so I don't forget. I was gonna piggyback, but go ahead. I was a piggyback too. Thank you, piggyback. <laughs> yeah. One thing that I feel like people don't uh, realize and it kind of underestimate is how much time this is actually going to to t- take to actually change. Because if you're going through this same thought process for the last eight years of your life, mm-hmm. a one month therapy session is probably not gonna fix that because you've been thinking and doing these things right. for the last eight years of, of your life. Those are almost engraved in you. That's just like how you are a mm-hmm. person now, and you have to change what kind of person you are to not think those same thoughts and not act in those in those same ways it's a big time commitment but mm-hmm. but remember that you're you know you, you live you live a long life and eight years of negative thinking seems like a lot but why don't you put in the hard work for a year and have the the next 20 30 40 years of your life be all positive thinking you gotta put in the time you gotta devote it and you gotta understand that hey i'm a person Maybe I sucked as a person these last eight years, but it's not the person that I am moving forward. It's gonna mm-hmm. take some time to change myself as a person, but I'm not this this person forever. And I have the power yeah. to change the way I think. I have the power to change the way I, I act, except I have to put in this process. I have to commit to myself that I'm going to start changing things. And you gotta put in the time, yeah. put in the effort, and you will eventually change it as a person over time. Yeah, yeah. A lot of what I think about is like, exactly what you said about like the eight years, like it's a, it's a scale. Like if you're doing this for this long, isn't this side going to be heavier than this side? So we have to kind of balance those things out. Um, and one thing to look at too, I come from a trauma informed practice, which basically means like, we want to look at what happened to you, not what's wrong with you. Cause a lot of people do have that feeling of, Oh, there's something wrong with me you most likely do the thing that you do because of something like this was your reaction to this thing that basically got, like you said, embedded. Um, I explained neural pathways of like roads of like, if you're continuously going down the same road of I'm a bad person, I'm a bad person, I'm a bad person, it's going to stick. So we have to find the thing that's going to help kind of pave that road, but also pave a better one. I, I wish so that, was, that time is huge. Mm-hmm. I wish there was like some therapy. Maybe in the future, it'll be a pill where you take and all of a sudden all the neurons that wired together are all free and you could just create your own synaptic connections again. And uh, piggybacking off your... <laughs> right. To be determined, right? And then piggybacking off what you guys were talking about on how to cope with this and you were mentioning anxiety. It's really hard to realize the stories that you're telling yourself and the thoughts that you have when you're just like very mind-focused. So also... Mm-hmm people listening is drop into your body and tune into your breath and take these nice mindfulness is a great practice for just to see how how is my breath if it's rigid if it's shallow if your your muscles are tense why right and we have to ask ourselves why am i feeling this way in this situation what can i give myself that maybe i'm needing you mentioned anxiety it's the fear of uncertainty what's ahead can you give yourself physical safety right now that everything's okay where maybe that anxiety will kind of go away. So just asking yourself those hard questions of why is my body tense right now? 
what is my mind telling me? And can I tell a different story about this reality? That's just, it's not reality. It's not, it's not fixed. It's, it's, um, it's only an aspect of reality that you're telling. Mm -hmm. And then maybe there's more here that we could understand and tell a different story. Yeah. That's a really good point because even the thoughts that go through your head, not every thought that goes to your head should be valued the same. You shouldn't Mm -hmm. act on every thought thought that you have in, in your head. Otherwise, you'd be a mess. You'd, you'd probably be a, a, a depressed person for sure because a lot of my yeah. thoughts are more negative than positive. It's just, it's, right. just, it's just what it is. It's just you have, to learn to, you have to learn to put value in those thoughts that you actually value in, in a sense because mm-hmm. you just have so yeah. much thoughts going everywhere about everything, especially when you're an anxious person. There's so much thoughts going through your head. But what thoughts actually mean something to you? Because not every, mm-hmm. every thought can mean the same. Right. And it makes sense. I keep saying thought and I keep thinking of like thought. The more times you say it, it yeah, doesn't sound yeah. like a real word. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like a lot of the times I like tease like my teenagers. I love teasing my teenagers because like it just like I poke around with them a little bit and I end up joking around of like, why do you if you're going to tell yourself that you're a piece of shit person every day aren't you going to feel like a piece of shit person? (laughs) And I try to make it, you know, I know that it's clearly not that simple, but sometimes it has to be that simple. Sometimes it has to just be, oh, okay. What if I just start to think a little bit of maybe this is going to work out. I don't tell my clients to go automatically from like positive to like negative to positive because we're never going to believe that positive side, like go, especially jumping so quickly of course it's going to feel false. So I try to get them to just sit a little bit in that middle, sit a little bit in the gray of maybe this is going to work out. I don't like myself right now, but maybe I'll like myself in a, in a day, in two days. I'm, I'm working on this thing right now. I have to give it time, like trying to sit in that gray a little bit because I get it. We're not going to just automatically believe the positive but what's the point of telling yourself that you suck every day? <laughs> like the world, like the world throws things at us. Life throws things at us already. And that's what I tell them too. Like, we don't know what's going to, we don't know what's going to happen. So something shitty could be happening in a month from now. Do we want to keep feeling like crap because we're telling ourselves that we're crappy? Or do we try to be a little bit more gentle on ourselves, have a little bit more of that compassion? Because like you said, like figuring out what thoughts are of more value. If we can see the beauty in our friends and our family and other people, if we're telling them, wow, you're a really great friend, you're a really great mom, like, why can't we tell ourselves that we're great? Yeah, very good, very good point there, because all that is data, if you think about mm -hmm. it. So you telling yourself negative stories data, you hearing that you're a great person from your family's data too. Now the question is, is what data are you going to focus on? That data the thought that you're saying i'm not good enough is just one data point unnecessary we could just void that and focus on something mm-hmm. that's more positive mm-hmm. if yeah. and that could be anybody that's in their in their day-to-day what are mm-hmm. if the thoughts aren't adding value to my life aren't making me feel good then maybe they're from somewhere stemming down from some insecurity low self-worth that shouldn't be there to begin with and we could just dismiss them to focus on a data that's actually going to align like you said, with your our client's goal or make you feel better wh- wherever you're going in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I tell my clients to ask themselves, and I, I do this for myself, but I ask, have them ask themselves, 
what evidence do I have that makes this thought true? Where is this evidence coming from? And, and I tr have them do that on both sides because the, the negative for them has some type of evidence. Oh, well, I like, I'm stupid because I got a 60 on my math test. Okay. Well, can you name me all of the ways that you're smart too? Because I'm sure there's a lot more evidence as to how, as how smart you are rather than how stupid you are because you got a 60 on a math test. And I have them ask themselves the question too of, is this a reliable source of information? Because sometimes our negative thoughts are coming from bullies, are coming from people that we don't want in our lives anymore or haven't treated us well. Um, I'm thinking about, you know, even people who go through traumatic events, like if somebody was assaulted or abused, they're taking them, like that becomes their narrative the person who was the abuser is not a good source of information. They're not a reliable source of information. So trying to get themselves to question too, where was this coming from? Because should we listen to the bully? Should we listen to the person that teased us, you know, all throughout grade school? Or do we listen to our friends and our family and our classmates who love us and our, you know, and our teammates or our colleagues? So trying to get that question too of like, is this a reliable source of information has them question a little bit of like, Oh, okay. Who should I be listening to? Or who, or how do I listen to myself also? Because we're, we're a reliable source on, on ourselves. We sometimes don't think that we are, but we're not going to like, nobody is going to know us better than we know ourselves, especially if we take the time to do that introspection. And like what you were saying before of like, just sitting with yourself a little bit and being more aware of what's going on. And Stephanie, how does debilitating anxiety look like? Because we all need a healthy amount of anxiety, right? We need some kind of anxiety in our life to have us be prepared. It's, it's healthy to be anxious sometimes. For example, when I go to mm -hmm. work, I'm dealing with people in ICU. I'm anxious that somebody might die. I, I need that anxiety because that keeps me more alert, more focused on, on what's going on. But how does somebody look like that's actually suffering through this high anxiety state? And, and also like, for example, depression. People tell me oh, I'm depressed. It's just like, no, not as depressed, you're just sad sometimes. And we're just naturally sad mm -hmm. sometimes. You're just saying you're depressed because you just have a sad day. You know, I see dying with yeah. depression, you gotta hop on any kind of SSRIs, you're just having a bad, rough day or a rough week, it'll pass. You can't have good days without bad days. So how does somebody with actually debilitating anxiety look like and present? Yeah, I think the biggest thing for me is always like, how much is this interfering with your life? Because even the depression thing is huge. Like, oh, I'm depressed. Like you said, it's like, you, today you were just sad. You had a little bit more of a sad day. But if somebody is staying in bed for several days, if somebody is getting you know, their hygiene is completely out the window. If they're missing work, that would be something that we would look at more of, oh, this person might be stepping into the realm of depression. Anxiety is similar in that way too, of how much is this interfering? Are you not able to do your job because you are actually so anxious that, I mean, especially for you guys, are you so anxious that you are going to kill somebody? Is that thought constant of, I can't do this because I'm doing it wrong. I can't do this because I'm doing it wrong. Is how present is that in your everyday? And are you able to reframe it at all? Is there any movement or is it just still kind of stuck there? So I usually like to ask the questions of, okay, how is it social anxiety? Are we not able to like go out with our friends like we used to because now we're sitting just thinking, 
I'm this, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this. And we're so out of the moment because we're only in our heads and just really like physically what that looks like for them too, that like really helping them identify like the heart racing, this, like the stomach and knots, whether you're sweating, whether you're like cold all the time, like everybody's kind of anxious, anxious symptoms are all different too. But I really like to ask that how much is this interfering? And if the thoughts are the only thing that you really can think about, and like, you're just this big ball of like tense shoulders and gut wrenching feeling the entire day. And there's no, there's no resolving. There's not even a little bit of a reduction that to me would be like, okay, we have to figure out what, where, what's going on, what we can do because it is really impacting that person going to work, going to school, being able to be themselves, even if they like in their home, we're thinking like, oh, their home is a safe place. If they're not able to be themselves in their safe place because they're just so in their head all the time, that's something that I would then start to question of like, okay, let's try to figure out how we move away from this. And I know that's kind of what happened to me when I was like a little while ago, a few years back when I was so anxious, it was like everything that I did was wrong or everything that I did was going to end up poorly. And it was the only thing that I was thinking about was I can't do anything because everything's going to be wrong and I can't deal with the wrong, if that makes sense. It definitely makes sense. I feel like it also makes healing a lot harder when we always label things where we label that I'm anxious, I have anxiety, and that label almost attaches that to your personality and you can't change it because it's part of like who you are. A mm. uh, perfect mm-hmm. example is patients that come in and they're diabetic. Okay, you're diabetic. Mm-hmm. I understand that there's a genetic, genetic component, but have you tried lifestyle changes to reverse that? Did you know that's reversible or did you just say, I am diabetic and that's it. You live with that label mm-hmm. and you haven't taken any action to change that. Or doctor told mm-hmm. me I'm, I'm diabetic, so I'm diabetic. And that's mm-hmm. your label. And mm-hmm. I feel like sometimes people with like, dep- you know, I don't want to um, talk about anybody's mental health in the wrong way, but labeling anxiety or uh, depression, you just say you're depressed and that's it. That's just what I, that's just how I've been. I've done it for 15 years and it's very disempowering when I hear patients speak like that because we all can take accountability for the way we're feeling and, and change that in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's also what's interesting about psychology and a DSM-5 and how we label things. Again, because mm-hmm. we put labels onto people, right? You have ADHD, boom, we slap that label. But what we're experiencing are just symptoms that the body is producing, that's ADHD. We're not getting to the root cause that the DSM-5 is doing. What if it's mm-hmm. childhood trauma that has the same symptoms of ADHD and we're just putting a label on ADHD and just calling it that and rolling with it. Hmm. So yeah. it's, um, we need some mindset shifts when it comes to uh, that area of life. So it's like an, it's like a cop out almost it's almost like an easier way just to, for us to be okay with what's happening. Yeah. In a sense. Yeah. And this is, and yeah. last thing, this is not only psychology, yeah. it's also in, in healthcare. We're labeling and putting mm-hmm. labels and we're creating lifelong customers with yeah. pharmaceuticals and patients versus doing the healing both physical and both mental Mm -hmm. totally well that's where my head was going was a lot of this this is the system so even with the dsm-5 a lot of places like i'm thinking about treatment centers so when i worked in the residential treatment center we had um, insurance calls every week 
for the clients. And we had to run down a list of reasons as to why they needed this level of care and not a lower level of care. And they're just checking off boxes. So it's, it is a system kind of problem because if you don't have this problem, then you can't receive this type of care. So I think a lot of the times my approach is like, I, I need to know, like, I need to know the symptoms because I need to know kind of, you know, where to go, but I'm not sitting there being like, okay, you do, you binge X, Y, Z times a week. So here's your diagnosis. I'm like, oh, you binge X, Y, Z times a week. Okay, why? What happened on that day? How do we move in there? And kind of asking those questions. But from a from a system perspective, like the insurance companies need those answers to be able to say, okay, this person deserves to be. Sometimes it is a deserving thing, unfortunately, because one different kind of number, one different statistic, they're kind of pushing people to a lower level of care when they might not be ready, but they're looking at all of these things of like, okay, cool, I'll pay for residential because she's X amount of sick, <laughs> but I'm not gonna pay, now I'm not paying for X, for residential because she's not X amount of sick. So it's kind of like that. And it's, so I, it, I can see also too why it's hard for people then to separate themselves from those labels because like you said, oh, well, my doctor called me diabetic, so of course I am. It's like when you're being told that you need to meet certain things to be sick, to be sick enough for care, it's hard to separate that. Um, But I think like, yeah, I think we can move away from that. And I think people have started to a little bit. Um, We have, you know, long ways to go with it. But BMI is the biggest thing that I kind of think about too, um, because BMI is looked at a lot for, for eating disorders, but also just for healthcare in general. And BMI was made up by an astronomer. BMI wasn't even made up by a doctor. BMI, it literally was an astronomer that made up BMI. I don't know how much more like bullshit that could be in a medical like space. Um, I'm curious though, to see if you guys, cause I know, you know, you, I know you guys travel. Have you guys come across people with eating disorders in the hospitals? Um, not a lot. So we do ICU. So mm-hmm. um, I saw, I want to say, um, only I saw two in, in this or- orders. Uh, one was a girl that was in her early 20s that was just super malnourished. And we, she had to actually mm-hmm. be checked into the ICU because we had to give her TPN. Mm-hmm. And another one was an eating, eating disorder, but it also was an, an older person that was just failure to thrive. So that was not necessarily like an eating disorder. We were classifying as an eating disorder, but it was just... Um, more of a so like swallowing movie. glass and stuff was it that one no this okay. was back none of these none of these happened here okay uh, this was back in chicago mm-hmm. um but yeah I, I haven't really like only one case in the last yeah. like five years i've been because it's icu a lot of our patients come in for right are usually older right. uh it's more of like a respiratory issue or cardiac issue we don't really see too much right. of much of that and if like for example someone with the eating disorder comes in they're not necessarily coming for the eating disorder they're coming for the complications like a stroke right. because of the eating disorder or something that happened because of the eating disorder. Yeah. So never, right. I never treat anybody. Yeah. 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 I just, I want to put this out there too. Like I appreciate having this conversation with you guys because I have also seen the way that people have gotten treated by medical professionals and who don't really know a lot about eating disorders. Um, 
and they're not really taught. Um, when I first started working um, at the residential facility and I explained to some of my colleagues that I actually had a class in grad school about eating disorders. Um, it was six weeks, it was sort of a half credit class. Everybody else was shocked. All the other like social workers or mental health counselors are like, wait a minute, you, you learned about these in school? This was like a, a, a week and we got, you know, kind of, we moved on to the next topic. And it's unfortunate because it's not really talked about. Um, and just from like a medical standpoint, I had once actually taken somebody to an ER and the client at the time was explaining to the ER, the ER uh, doctor at the time of like, I have edema, like, then it's really, you know, bothering me it was in her legs and, you know, explaining a whole bunch of things. The doctor just dismissed her because she was at, a lower BMI. She was somebody who was on the smaller side and she did have, she did have a lot of weight to gain, but they weren't putting the two together that she actually was experiencing edema from, and that she knew from her past medical history because they didn't really know about eating disorders. And they didn't really know a lot of like the complications on the medical side. Um, I'm a little bit far removed, farther removed from the medical side now because I'm not in the residential setting. Um, but that's something I just, you know, I appreciate having the conversation just because it's not, I'm sure that they're granted, maybe not ICU, but I'm sure they're in your hospitals. It's just a matter of like having people, having clinicians, doctors and nurses that know more too. Yeah. You know, what really blew my mind when you said that someone has to qualify into a, a certain um, like DSM-5 thing. It's, mm -hmm. it's kind of like, like mind blowing because you have to qualify to be diagnosed with like a certain issue or you have to mm -hmm. qualify to to uh be labeled as this so then you get this kind of kind of treatment is there yeah. like any other approach that, that we could take that doesn't involve having to qualify to get a certain amount of, amount of treatment Should maybe maybe do a approach that's more of like it's to say treatment based instead of like symptom based so let's just say somebody comes in with like some psych stuff we first try to talk to them then we try this then we try that instead of like having to first label them with some kind of a disease or issue before they could uh, start treatment? I wish, <laughs> I wish that I could like snap my fingers. Yeah. And like have a facility pop up tomorrow. That's like, okay, everybody with, you know, everybody with this, this, this like behavior, be this, 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 like, you know, history, whatever, all kind of come into a room. Um, it really is. Uh, as far as I know, in this moment, there's not really many places um, that would be able to be funded in that way, unless it was sort of like privately funded and treatment costs a lot of money. <laughs> so that's kind of the thing that I, I wish that it wasn't like that. I just don't I think there would be, you know, a lot of factors, a lot of barriers to be able to have more of just a person approach and not you knock all of these lists. So thank you, you know, listen, it's treatment centers are a business. We can't knock them. Like they have to be a business. They have to somehow make money to run and, and, you know, to have the resources, but unfortunately it does end up being a little bit on the business side when you're working with insurance companies and that you have to sit there and say, you know, this person, you, you want the person to get better, but then as soon as they get better, they get kicked out and they might not be ready for that lower level of care. They might not be ready for a PHP. Um, so I, I wish it was simple to just say like, we're gonna treat 
you as the person that you are and really try to understand again that purpose of what these things are doing for you um i think we're a little bit a ways away from that unfortunately yeah. and, and but... i think that's very important for everybody to just take accountability for their own health in every single level mm-hmm. because we have a system that's disadvantage disadvantages mm-hmm. nothing right this 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 yeah, yeah not today man yeah. i'll continue yeah, yeah I'd, I'd butcher it too yeah okay. no, i'd butcher it too <laughs> So, so the system is not of benefit to us, just like pharmaceuticals and pills for cholesterol, any little thing, diabetes. We have to really take a hold mm-hmm. of our health and actually see what the treatments are, maybe what the root causes are, how maybe we should proceed, and then use that judgment from, you know, in this case, Dr. Google, compare it to a specialist yeah. and see maybe yeah. how you can um, go about things not in an ignorant way but just in, a, in an informed yeah. way because of the way yeah. the system is yeah it's interesting yeah. because it's like almost like they took the physical model if of treating physical issues and just threw it at the at the mental aspect because there's a big difference between physical and mental right for example physical as in you have a broken bone okay i guess physically see the bone being broken i gotta put that mm-hmm. bone together or physical in a sense of diabetes okay pancreas doesn't produce diabetes okay we get insulin into the system in the, in the mental approach of things, it's different because you don't see that. You, you don't see a broken brain, right? You don't see you're depressed because you have the parietal lobe of your brain is broken. And once you attach the parietal lobe together, your depression goes away. It's, it's not physical. It, it doesn't, you, you, don't, you don't see it physically being fixed. It's more about how you, how you feel. And just taking that, that approach of trying to f- physically fix the mind in the same way you physically fix things in your body, it just, just doesn't work. It's just a mm-hmm. simple way we do things and we have to kind of figure out a different way how to treat the mind because it's it's not a physical fix. It's an internal fix that you can't see or that person that's experienced that could could feel that that fix. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the way. things that, mm-hmm. yeah, that's one of the things that I, I love. It's also one of the reasons that I started to work with kids because when I was in grad school, I was like, I'm working with 18 and older. That was my thing. I was like, I like, I need to talk to adults because I, at the time was just like, so set on, this is the way that I know how to explain things. So like, I need adults. But as I've been in this field and have started to see a few more things and you know, just put more pieces together, it's why I kind of started to lower the ages that I started to work with because I was like, wait a minute. Okay, if we can help somebody who's six or seven, start to understand their feelings, start to understand, oh, when I clench my fists and I get really hot and I want to hit something, that means I'm angry. Like we can set up that, you know, this generation for something so much better than our generation, like generations before them have had. So that's one thing that I'm grateful for in kind of the shift of what parents now start to see and parents now like are asking those questions and are having their kids come into therapy and there's there's starting to be less of a stigma about therapy overall and like you don't you know you're not like fucked up for, then you need to go to therapy right excuse my language but like me like i see kids my my colleague lauren sees kids um our newest therapist to peaceful living kate also sees kids and i think it's really great because some, you know, some are coming in because maybe something did happen. Their parents got divorced and like, that's really big for a kid. And sometimes I've had parents just kind of say like, listen, I, I just want to make sure that my kid knows that they can talk to somebody. And I want to make sure that my kid knows like that their feelings are okay. And 
sometimes, and like, I am very grateful. I work with really wonderful parents and they ask for tips on, you know, how to model things on the, on a daily basis. Cause you know, I'm only getting them once a week. Um, but that's something that I'm grateful for because I think that we are then able to put together your body is reacting in a certain way and it's coming out maybe in a more mental way. So how do we put those together and how do we move forward so that, you know, maybe some, maybe a kid who has the tendency to like hit their sibling when they're frustrated is actually able to say like, oh, I'm frustrated right now. And it, you know, depends on language for however old the, you know, the kid might be. But these kids also nowadays are amazing they're coming into my office being like well I like I don't like this thing and that like you know my brother did this and that's why I got really mad so that's why I hit him I know I'm not really supposed to I know I should count to 10 and take a breath and I'm like what are you talking like who they're they're learning a lot more which I'm grateful for um I didn't get taught that when I was in school nobody told you know that I can stand on a soapbox about what should be involved in school curriculums but you know, they, they, I'm happy to see that there is that shift. Um, but I think that there's a lot of things like that. Even you guys mentioning, you know, mentioning diabetes, mentioning heart disease. I think if we start to really be able to explain things a lot sooner, like a lot of you, you always need something to happen to get treatment rather than the, rather than it being prevented. And unless you get a really, a really great doctor, um, that, sees your family history and is like, okay, let's have that not happen to you. A lot of the times it's, oh, something happened. So now let's, let's figure it out. Let's fix it rather than, you know, kind of going, going from the beginning. But I think that's awareness and, you know, these types of conversations and getting that information out to people of like, it doesn't have to be like this. It doesn't like, we can hopefully change the system at some point that you don't need to be super sick in order to, you know, check all these boxes and be super sick to get help. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to see that the awareness for mental health is is uptrending mm-hmm. because there's this, like you mentioned, there's a stigma that when people go to therapy, it's because they have some crazy mental issue like bipolar or schizophrenia. When you hear somebody go, like if I tell my parents, hey, Matt's seeing therapy, they're gonna be like, oh, what happened? Is he going crazy? I think yeah. people are slowly yeah. shifting from that mindset and into a younger generation where seeing a therapist, getting mental health is seen more as a way for you to improve yourself. Yeah. More of that approach. Not that you have a problem, it's just you're trying to make yourself better than you are. And sometimes one way yeah. to do that is if you can't do it yourself, is through therapy. And that's completely okay. It doesn't mean you have a disease. It doesn't mean you have an issue. You want therapy because you want to just make yourself a better person in, in general. Yeah. I think that's the way yeah. therapy is going and that's the proper way to, to look at therapy you're trying to make yourself yeah. mentally be- better same way you go to the gym to make yourself physically stronger and you can't you can't get the same results as working out at home for example if you try just to do body weights work out at home push-ups pull-ups you're gonna get stronger but once you throw in weights go to the gym you're gonna get even more stronger same with therapy there's only right. so much soul searching you could do until you actually need some help to even get greater soul searching yeah yeah and i'm i'm really grateful just for the conversations that I've been able to have, like with other, you know, with other colleagues too, and like in the field as a whole and, and wanting to get more of that awareness out there and wanting to help with that stigma. Because even when when I started therapy in high school, I didn't tell anybody. 
I, you know, my parents knew and my, my cousin knew because I didn't drive at the time. So she would drive me to my therapy sessions, but like, I didn't tell anybody and I didn't necessarily understand until I like, until I got older that like, oh, I didn't tell anybody. Cause I thought that there was a problem with going like, and I almost kind of fed into that stigma at the time. And now like, I'm happy to even hear some of my clients be like, oh yeah, like all my friends know who you are. My friends know I'm in therapy. And I'm like, oh, beautiful. Because none of my friends did 10 years ago, 15 years ago. So, you know, I'm happy that it is starting to change. Um, and I'm just, I'm happy that people are starting to just take care of themselves a little bit better and wanting to like live the life that they really want for themselves. And that's just kind of what I'm, you know, the little nuggets that I drop in session, like that's just kind of what I'm hoping is helping people do is just like live the life that they actually want to live and not feel trapped by, by their thoughts and their feelings because they don't have to be. Our feelings are just trying to tell us something. They're just signals that like something needs a little bit of attention at the time. They're not scary. They're not gonna, they're not gonna hurt you. They're gonna go away. It's like I on repeat a little bit because a lot of my clients like they don't want to feel because they think that their feelings are are never going to go away. And it's like it, they do. They do. They just need a little bit of attention in that moment. That's powerful. And it's awesome that you're also giving positive encouragement to these patients that they could see the other side of healing and how that looks. One last question I would like to ask all of our guests. So if you had the opportunity yeah. to have a cup of coffee one last time, who would it be and why? I love that. Um, my grandparents. Um, so I, I don't have any grandparents anymore. Um, I had, I had three growing up. I had my maternal, like both sets of like my grandpa and my grandma, and then my paternal grandma. And, um, a little while ago, my colleagues and I were having the conversation of like, did you ask, like, did you ask your grandparents questions? Like, do you know the stories? Like, do you know them as a person and not just as your grandparent? Mm. And I really didn't ask the questions. And my grandparents, like I'm, I'm first generation born here. So my grandparents came over from Italy with my parents and they spoke Italian and I learned it. I lost it a little bit as I got older, but that language barrier was really hard for me to sit there and ask all of those questions. So now that I'm a little older and a little wiser, it's like, I, you know, want to be able to like sit down with them and, and ask those questions and just get to know them and also just have them see, you know, all of the things that I've done since they've been gone. Um, but yeah, those guys. <laughs> and Stephanie, where can people find you if they want to reach out to you? Um, so I am at Peaceful Living Mental Health Counseling in Scarsdale. So you can like look us up on Google. Um, I, I have an Instagram that's like professionally geared. I don't post on it too, too much. Um, but it's Stephanie, S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E, Polizzi, P-O-L-I-Z-Z-I, -I, underscore. Oh, God, now I think I'm going to tell you it wrong. <laughs> um, it's really long, as you can see. Um, <laughs> I think I'm going to tell you it wrong now. Um, yep. So Stephanie Polizzi underscore LMHC for licensed mental health counselor. Um, and that's my Instagram handle, but peaceful living has an Instagram also. Okay. Amazing. Thank you for your time for being on the show. We just want to acknowledge you for your 
knowledge that you brought to us about therapy, about thank EMDR, you. which I had no idea about. We just learned our first time. And thank you for what you do for the Magic. youngins, the teenagers, and helping them move through their eating disorders and everything else that you might deal with yeah. in your office regarding trauma. So thank you. Yeah. yeah, thank you guys. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for doing this. Um, I've listened to a lot of your episodes and the conversations that you guys, guys have is just wonderful. Um, so keep doing what you're doing. It's needed. So thank you so much. Yeah.